This is Unprecedential, a podcast on American constitutionalism from the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Adam White, resident scholar at AEI, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Tal Fortgang. Hi, Adam. Hello, everyone. <laughs> now, Tal, we call our podcast Unprecedential because we're particularly focused on American constitutionalism beyond the four walls of the Supreme Court, right? That and all the other names were taken. That, that too. But I guess the point is, <laughs> we're not focused single-mindedly on judicial precedents, hence the name unprecedential. And sometimes people mishear the title. They think we're saying unpresidential by reference to, I don't know, some particular president somewhere. Doesn't sound like anything that would ring any bells. No, not at all. But uh, no, 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 we have to explain that's not what we're talking about. The point is we're unprecedential. We're not bound in by Supreme Court precedents, except this episode today actually comes back directly to the point about what it means to be presidential or unpresidential. We'll be discussing today questions about the presidency itself, what it was created to be, what it's become, how we got here, and how we might return to something closer to the founder's vision. And to discuss these questions, it's our honor and pleasure to be joined by my friend Stephen Knott of the U.S. Naval War College. Professor Knott is an expert on the presidency, especially with respect to its constitutional origins, its modern powers, and more specifically, we'll be discussing his new book, The Lost Soul of the American Presidency. So, Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Adam. It's a thrill to be here and see all my friends at AEI. Yeah. Well, let's start with the title of the book, The Lost Soul of the American Presidency. Did you pick that title? I did pick that title. It's one of the few success stories I've had in the seven or eight books I've published. Usually the, the publisher manages to substitute the title, I suggest. But I won this battle, not that it was a battle, but you know, I think it sums up the gist of the book, which is we've lost a lot in terms of how the presidency was originally conceived and how it's practiced today. And it's, having read the book now, it's hard to imagine a better title than this, actually. And let's focus on the key word, soul. What is the soul of the American presidency? In my view, it's summed up primarily in the presidency of George Washington. Washington was, I think, a president who understood the role of that job to be head of state. And granted, there were no formal political parties at the time, but I think we could learn a lot from Washington's lesson, from his precedents in terms of putting more emphasis on the head of state role of the president and less on his role as a partisan leader. We've drifted so far from that vision, and I think it's come at a great cost to the American political order. Let me go just a little bit beyond that. Sure. Washington understood the role, I think, as head of state to include the notion that the president needs to be a magnanimous character. He needs to be somebody who's not constantly stirring the pot, who's not setting American against American but trying to remind us what unifies us. And again, I think not only our current president, but many of his predecessors have sort of lost that vision and see themselves as the partisan-in-chief or policy formulator-in-chief. And I'm sort of making the case that we go back, at least to the extent that we can, to this original version of the president. Now, not to put you on the spot, but could you give an example or two from Washington of, of, of what you're thinking of? Well, one of the things that jumps out at me for instance, his letter to the synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, which I think is one of the classics in American documents. It should be, be more widely read than it is, in which Washington makes it clear that all sorts of people of different religious faiths will be welcomed here in the United States, and that the president, 
who takes an oath to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, will ensure their safety. And as long as they remain good citizens, they will be welcomed here in this American experiment. So that may be a little bit of a stretch, but it, again, it's the notion that the president is above partisanship and the president should never engage in sort of targeting unpopular groups. When you say President Washington was magnanimous, self-restrained, dignified, focused on duty, I mean, those are characteristics of George Washington, the man himself. He, he studied and focused and trained himself long before we had a presidency to be that kind of, of person, that kind of statesman. So when you talk about those examples, are we talking about Washington or are we talking about the presidency? I guess what I'm saying is how much of what you see in Washington was intended to be in the presidency by the framers? And how much of it is just the happy accident of having Washington as our first president? Great question. It's a little bit of both. Uh, certainly, Washington brought these very impressive characteristics into the office. But I would argue that James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, many of the other framers of the Constitution and arguably framers of the office understood the importance of this role as of head of state, of somebody who would not engage, as Hamilton put it, in the little arts of popularity. Right. It was not the president's job to stir the pot. It was not the president's job to both channel public opinion or to shape public opinion. And again, we've lost that sense. So yes, a lot of it is due to George Washington's example. But if you read the Federalist Papers, there are endless examples in both the writings of Hamilton and Madison about the dangers of demagoguery and the fears of passion, sort of overwhelming reason. Yeah. And they were trying to create an office that would at least be able to resist those whims of passion, those passing public fancies that particularly might be detrimental to certain minorities, whether they're religious, racial, or economic. Now, on the cover of the book, there are three presidents, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, and Donald Trump. And people who pick this up on the bookstore shelf or come across the, the cover on Amazon are naturally going to assume that this is a book about Donald Trump, since everything now is about Donald Trump. When did you start working on this project? What inspired you to write this book? I first started thinking about this book back in 2012. There were aspects of the Obama presidency that I, th I thought fit perfectly with this notion of presidents promising the world and being unable to deliver. And of course, I remembered President Obama, then candidate Obama's I believe it was when he secured the Democratic Party nomination that this was the point at which the oceans begin to heal and that the earth begins to cool or something to that effect. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a pretty extravagant claim. And that was coupled with the same time I was thinking of writing a book on President Kennedy, which actually I'm doing right now. And President Kennedy, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up in a New Deal, New Frontier family that worshipped the Kennedys. But President Kennedy is a classic Wilsonian chief executive. He sought to forge this personal bond with the public. But more than that, he promised that the presidency was going to be the center of action, mm -hmm. that the president could be as big a man as he wanted to be. And not only was the president the leader of the United States, he was, in a sense, the leader of the entire free world and really, in a way, responsible for the whole planet itself. And that kind of extravagant rhetoric that I saw in Kennedy and in Obama and other modern 20th century American presidents, that's where the idea came from. Donald Trump was not even a declared candidate when I first started putting together notes for this book. 
Now, in that respect, it's a reminder that some of the things that people criticize President Trump for in terms of both his political style and his, his approach to governance, in many, many respects, what he's doing is not new. It's just the latest step on a much longer sort of expansion. Obviously, he does it with his own particular, we'll call it flair, but what he's doing in many ways is a continuation of the story that you're traced in the book from much, much earlier. That is absolutely true. And again, I probably would have written this book whether Trump won in 2016 or not. Because again, as you just mentioned, the path to Donald Trump, it's been a long one. It's been at least 100 years. And again, I argue in the book, goes back to Jefferson and Jackson. So yeah, Trump is just the latest spin on this presidency that practices the little arts of popularity, as Hamilton would put it. Yeah, and judging from a lot of the things that are being debated or discussed or promised in the Democratic debates and primaries right now, President Trump, whether he serves just one more year or five more years, likely will not be the last president to approach the presidency with that kind of rhetoric. That's absolutely right. Let's continue with the basic narrative of the book. There was the soul of the American presidency. It's been lost. People might come to this book assuming that the loss was recent, whether it's the current president, his predecessor, or another 20th century president. But you date the the beginning of the loss actually much closer to the creation itself, right? I do. I do. I actually date it to Thomas Jefferson, which I'm laughing because I've written quite a few books on Alexander Hamilton. So I'll put that right up front. I'm not particularly a fan of Jefferson's, but one of the reasons I'm not is because he did move the presidency, I think, away from its constitutional moorings, from its uh, moorings as envisioned by Madison, Hamilton, Washington, into an office of based or rooted in public consent, public opinion. And in so doing, Jefferson partially opens the door, I think, to this more populist presidency, and Andrew Jackson basically kicks the door in completely. Yeah. So again, what's, a, what's a, an example from, from Jefferson? Well, again, Jefferson's opposed to, I mean, at one point he toys with the idea of abolishing the Electoral College. And there were other, I just think there's, a, if you look at the writings of Jefferson, he is convinced that public opinion is the sort of safest repository for the security of this political order. That's turning Hamilton and Madison's arguments on its head, it seems to me. Hamilton and Madison, I would argue, are more about the rule of law. Jefferson is more about the rule of public opinion. Jefferson suggested, it, it may have been in jest, that rewriting the Constitution every some That's, odd number of years. Every 19 or 20 years. It's a real appeal to democracy there, exactly. which flies in the face of the, the ardent republicanism that exactly. you see in the, in the Federalists. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the dead should not be governing the living. And that applies to the president as well. I would also add that Jefferson talks about this notion that the president being the only nationally elected figure is in a position to speak. He can see the whole picture. And so he's uniquely situated to speak for the entire body politic. And again, I think that's kind of turning at least Hamilton and Washington and Madison's conception on its head. The president is supposed to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, not implementing the will of a majority. Well, and then so you, you continue with Jackson and his own style of populism, but asking, I, I suppose, to summarize on the following 150 years of history in, in 90 seconds or so. <laughs> so where does the story go from Jackson? From Jackson it goes, I mean, I take, uh, I have a, full, a chapter on Abraham Lincoln, who's a bit of a tough, was a challenge for me because Lincoln, of course, pays 
a great homage to, to the public, to the people, government of, by, and for the people. But for Lincoln, there are a lot of issues that are off-limits to sort of public will, public opinion. Did he refer to Lincoln at one point as a closeted Hamiltonian, was <laughs> I it? Do. Yeah, I yeah. do. You know, he, he is quoted as saying, all honor to Jefferson, and of course, Lincoln reveres the Declaration of Independence. But if you examine Lincoln's policies, he's very much, he and his fellow Whigs were very much adherents to Hamilton's economic and political vision. It's just that Hamilton was so unpopular, mm-hmm. and the Federalists were so unpopular in places like Kentucky and Illinois that it would be political suicide to openly associate yourself with Hamilton. Right. But even his admiration for Clay, who I also think was a closet Hamiltonian, Henry Clay, is why I make that argument. So the, the, the story particularly accelerates around the time of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, as Jeffrey Toulos and others have have written before that sort of heralds the era of the rhetorical presidency, where the presidency takes on a fundamentally different character, and you really focus on Wilson's role in that. I do. I focus on Wilson more than TR. I've actually already received a little bit of criticism on that front, the sense that I may have slighted TR, and that's a, probably a legitimate argument. But I focus more on, on Wilson because his ideas took root very quickly within the Democratic Party. The Republican Party will follow suit, but it's going to take a much longer time for that to occur. The other thing is, Wilson being our only PhD president, I just think had a tremendous influence within academic circles. And it's within academic circles that you see this celebration of this populist, public opinion-shaping presidency. So in my view, Wilson's the more significant at least intellectual figure, T.R. being more man of action. Uh, that what, was the reason. And what was Wilson calling for in terms of the president? Well, he was calling for, as he put it, a president that could be as big a man as he wanted to be. You know, a president who, to be honest, had, had a certain contempt for the Constitution. I mean, it was great what those guys did back in the 1780s and 90s, but those were horse and buggy days. We had moved, we had evolved beyond that. And so Wilson thought the government of the United States, including the office of the presidency, should grow grow beyond that as well. So this is a man who envisions, I think, a kind of boundless office and a boundless federal government. And we've been living with that now for 100, 110 years. And it's one thing for just, say, one president to announce that view. But when president after president announces it and Congresses, especially early, early 20th century, are eager to accommodate it, by not just allowing the president to claim power, but actively giving the president power, that charts us down a course of a much different presidency. It's not just a story about what presidents do, but it is necessarily a story about what Congresses do, right? Absolutely, Adam. No question about it. And again, if there's one sort of perhaps justifiable, maybe it's the second justifiable criticism of the book, and I I say this right up front in the book, this is a president-centric book. And I acknowledge that there were other factors at work that led us to this populist, unbounded presidency. But there's no question that Congress was part and parcel of making this happen. You said a moment ago it took a little longer for the Republican Party to catch up. When does the Republican Party catch up with this view of the presidency? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think they catch up with it in a sense. I suppose you could argue the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, granted, you know, they turn to a war hero. They turn to somebody with a great smile who's going to appeal both to, you know, readers of Look and Life magazine, uh, but also to this new invention of television. 
And he's also not a kind of ideological conservative that most of his predecessors would have been in the Republican Party, perhaps Dewey accepted. But the, the thing that's really struck me, the Republican Party, up until Donald Trump, there was still this sense that you had to kind of bide your time. You had to earn your, you know, you had to cut your teeth. There was a kind of pecking order, you know, the Bushes, the Romneys, even Richard Nixon with the resume that he had. They threw that out with Donald Trump and arguably selected a presidential candidate who wasn't even a Republican. I actually thought if you had asked me 10 years ago, which of the two political parties is going to go down this more purely populist course, I would have said the Democrats part and parcel. I mean, the Republican Party's had a real populist streak going back now for 50 years, though. True. Great point. Yeah. With, with Eisenhower is sort of a natural managerial president because he was a general, right? Nixon, not quite so much. But I, I recall, boy, maybe 15 years ago, Jack Goldsmith, he was reviewing books on the presidency by John Yoo and Gary Willis. And Jack actually went back to old issues of National Review and found National Review editorials and articles really taking on a strong sort of pro-presidential approach for the first time in about the early 70s. So you had this shift. And then, of course, Reagan wanted to, the Reagan administration wanted to centralize more power. Is there a distinction to be made here between the soul of the presidency as an institution itself and the soul, if there is one, of the executive branch? That's an interesting question, which I haven't thought of. It's a difficult question. I mean, I'm very focused in this book on these individuals who happen to have held this office. And I do think ultimately, in some ways, it does come down to the character of these people, which is why I'm so fearful of the idea that there's really no screening left. In other words, both political parties in 2016, the Democrats almost selected somebody who's not a Democrat. The Republicans did select somebody who's not a Republican. The parties are toothless when it comes to sort of weeding out those folks who are really insufficiently trained and lacking certain characteristics to be a president. Well, this point about presidential character, James Madison told us in The Federalist, right, that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. He said elsewhere that enlightened statesmen won't always be at the the helm. I guess if somebody from the Naval War College appreciate, particularly would appreciate that approach. But the fact is, The Federalist is replete with discussions about character. And you, you discussed this. And I guess it's a natural point to go back to the Federalist now. You quoted the few lines from the Electoral College, right? Hamilton is arguing in the Federalist for Electoral College because it will have a, a tendency. I think he even says at one point, a, practically a full guarantee <laughs> that he says it's a, a certainty that the Electoral College will produce a certain kind of, of character. What kind of character were the, were the framers looking at? And were they really building a constitution that needed the right person at the helm? Another terrific question. I do think the original Electoral College, as conceived, would have had a greater likelihood of producing those enlightened characters. And of course, we've essentially gutted the Electoral College at this point. I'm one of the few people who actually thinks we should, we should bring back the original Electoral College. Of course, we repeal the 17th Amendment while we're at it. And do that as well. We could probably hold our convention in a broom closet in terms of the number of people who would agree with me. But, you know, I do think that we've democratized ourselves to the point where, and, and you see this all the time, anytime there's a problem pointed out, the answer always is we've got we've to open things up even more. We've got to become even more responsive to the will of the public. 
And I just see that as a disastrous mistake. And we've been doing this repeatedly now for 230 years. Yeah. But I do think the original Electoral College increased the likelihood that you would get a more enlightened form of statesman. But unfortunately, we abandoned that pretty quickly. Separate from that discussion in the Electoral College, there are a number of other places in the Federalist where they, they recognize that actually there is real danger of presidents having the wrong incentives. This comes up in Federalist 22, I can't remember if it's Hamilton or Madison, writing about the influence of foreign governments. The author points out, I guess Publius points out, that you don't really have to worry about this with monarchy. Right? One of the, the, the nice things about monarchy, I suppose, is that you have somebody who's identified personally with the state and his or her honor is bound up totally in the state. With a republic, they said there's a unique danger that bringing somebody out of the people and making them the head of state actually exposes the country to this risk of foreign influence. And so therefore, we have things like the Emoluments Clause. Or elsewhere, you know, you look much later in the Federalists, we're talking about appointment of officers. And Hamilton writes, that if the president alone were picking officers, yeah, you'd avoid the problems of vesting this in, say, the House alone, but the giving it to the president alone would ha- entail some risk of favoritism, appointing people who just happen to know the president, he likes that person. You need the Senate to check that impulse on the, the president. And so you see elsewhere where the framers are genuinely worried about the character of the president. So it's not just that they, they said, get the right person and all good things will happen. But the risk, I suppose, is that we've sort of overlearned that lesson. We think that because we have these structural checks and balances, character doesn't matter. But the, the core point of your book is, no, actually, we do rely on certain sort of traits of character in the presidency to at least have the presidency that the framers wanted. Right. Yeah, that's right, Adam. No, terrific points. And again, you know, I would argue that I've made this a point in other forums. One thing that might help us get back on track, and I realize this would take a tremendous, tremendously long period of time, is just simply civics education. Yeah. There's just, and I, you know, I do my best here and there. I teach at Ashland University, the Master's in American History and Government, terrific program that teaches uh, high school teachers who teach history and civics. I'm encouraged because we, one of the things we do is we read the Federalist Papers from beginning to the end. But that's a long-term project. I'm stunned repeatedly at, I hate to be so blunt, but uh, the ignorance of the American public when it comes to this alternative vision that the founders are holding out for us, but it's going to take a little bit of effort to rediscover it. To, to return to what I see as its wisdom. Not that there weren't flaws, but it certainly was a better system than we have today. A conservative like me usually assumes that politics is downstream of culture, but in some ways politics is also upstream of culture, right? you looking at the figures that you've, you, you, you study in this book. You see that the best presidents are educators or exemplars by themselves, and the presidents who, who not just fall short of that standard, but like Wilson, actively walk away from that standard. They themselves teach the public something different. So to what extent is, with that civic renewal that you're, 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 you're calling for, to what extent does that count on the government itself, not necessarily presidents alone, but presidents and other parts of government, to educate the people? Another terrific question. I, probably, I think there are some incentives that both state, local, and the federal government could do to restore a more traditional form of civics education. 
Although I have to say some of the programs that I've seen that are doing precisely that, I don't think they really don't have any direct, they're not receiving any aid from the federal government or, any, or anything of that sort. But, you know, I realize it's an uphill battle because a lot of the people I praise in this book, you know, George Washington, for instance, was a slave owner. And at this point, you know, that's kind of automatic expulsion in a lot of circles. It just he's not worth looking at. And I, and I think that's a tragedy. By the way, I also should point out, I spend at least a few pages in this book on John Quincy Adams. Right. He's also, in my view, somebody who understood the importance of the constitutional presidency and conducted himself in a dignified manner in the face of what I see as Andrew Jackson's demagoguery. So John Quincy Adams is somebody, if I had my way, I might consider sandblasting Mount Rushmore, getting Jefferson off, and putting uh, John Quincy Adams up there. Or what about his father, John Adams? I'm not as big a fan of John as I am of John Quincy, although there are a lot of attributes. I think John Adams did try. It was a tough act to follow, coming on the heels of President George Washington, but I have respect for him, but more so for his son, just trying to sort of stand up to the Jacksonian demagoguery. And, and this is critical, and this runs throughout the book, John Quincy Adams is a man who understood the dangers of this majoritarian populist presidency. The price was being paid by Native Americans and by free blacks in both the North and the South who were being stripped of their voting rights during the so-called Age of Jackson, which is frequently portrayed as an era of democratization and celebration of the common man. That wasn't true if you were a free black. Yeah, Jackson's legacy was really burnished by Schlesinger, right, by Arthur Schlesinger. And then, you know, in the mid-20th century, the Democrats, largely through Schlesinger, tried to root the Rooseveltian presidency into those Jacksonian origins, right? But because of that, we lose everything you're just talking about. That's right. And so, yeah, Franklin Roosevelt was a genius, and his academic admirers were a genius. They they linked the New Deal to to old Hickory, to to Andrew Jackson. And to Jefferson. And to Jefferson, the memorial, Jefferson the mo- Jackson Day yeah. dinners and all of that. There was a reason they did that. They were trying to hold up an alternative view yeah. of the presidency, which is that it's, it's an office uniquely situated to speak for the whole and to fulfill this notion that the majority is to govern. You know, I swore on the first episode of this podcast that we'd bleep out the name of Andrew Jackson every time it was mentioned. So I'm going to have a lot of work to do after we're done recording. God bless you. But... In the meantime, what what stands out in talking about the Jackson presidency is one of the greatest, most repugnant acts of really speaking for the people and defying the Supreme Court, right, and saying that they've they've rendered their judgment now let them enforce it. And that that seems to be a recurring theme on this podcast: the role of the president as a voice of the people, speaking to the counter-majoritarian voices of the Supreme Court and saying that that doesn't really speak for the people. I imagine that that is a form of corruption of the soul of the presidency. But how do we distinguish between when Jackson does it and when Lincoln, in a more noble form, rejects the Supreme Court's decision on slavery? Well, I mean, I think Lincoln does urge, teach the American public to abide by the Supreme Court's decision, but to, you know, use the proper channels to ultimately try to change that decision. Whereas I see in the case of Jackson and of FDR, who, again, linked himself constantly to Jackson, they both had a contempt for the Supreme Court. FDR was very public in condemning the Supreme Court. And in fact, and remarkably, at one point, 
during the whole court packing battle, he urges the Supreme Court to sort of get on board with the New Deal, that the three horses of the federal government, the judiciary, the presidency, and the Congress, have to be working together, and that the Supreme Court should abide by public opinion and abide by election results. And again, that's completely turning the vision of Hamilton and Madison and Washington on its head. Now, in Hamilton's you know, famous argument for the judiciary in Federal 78, he actually holds out the fact that the courts rely on the president to enforce their decisions, right? That's one of the arguments for the court's weakness is that they have neither force nor will, but merely judgment. They don't have the sword. They don't have the purse. They can't even enforce their own judgments. They rely on the executive. So he holds that out as a power of the president to not enforce. But in a way, for the system to really work, Hamilton has to presume the presidents won't exercise that power, right? That it's, it's a lever that they will pull rarely, if ever. And that, I think, is, is really at the heart of the book, then, is this question of these presidents who are vested with such power, even more now, thanks to all these enactments of Congress and just basic changes in the way we communicate, the way our country relates to other countries. With the president vested with so much power, the real challenge is one of not just other branches checking and bouncing him, but it's one of self-restraint, those limits. And that's where character really becomes a question. Now, back to the story of loss, you know, you date it to Jefferson, and so people might think of 1800, but in a way, it's even earlier than that, right? It's 1796, the first real presidential campaign Jefferson loses, but he mounts the first sort of populist campaign. And so we really are just eight years into the republic before this starts to fall apart, and it falls apart with the birth of political parties. How much of the law of the losing of the soul of the American presidency reflects the the rise of party government? Absolutely, great point, and no question. I do acknowledge up front that the development of political parties contributes considerably to this lost soul. I would still argue that there are enough exceptions after the rise of political parties. Again, John Quincy Adams. I spend a lot of time on William Howard Taft in this book, which mm -hmm. is somewhat unique. But there are other examples of presidents who existed, who functioned, who prevailed in the party system, but I would argue conducted themselves in a manner consistent with this earlier vision of the American presidency. So I think it is possible to do so without becoming a Jackson or an Andrew Johnson, who I also deal with in this book, who I think is Trump's, President Trump's closest parallel yeah. in the 19th century. So it can be done. We went arguably for, you know, from 1789 up through Teddy Roosevelt with two glaring exceptions, Jefferson and Jackson and Andrew Johnson, three glaring exceptions, where presidents conducted themselves in a manner, again, that I would see as constitutionally sound, and it can be done now within a party system. From Teddy Roosevelt onward, it's a story of not just political change, but also technological change, right? I mean, how much of the story, at least from Roosevelt onward, just reflects basic change in the way that Americans communicate, receive information, the fact that we, we, we can, that candidates can travel in a way they couldn't before. I mean, it's not just that politics has changed, it's that sort of the world has changed. How much of, of, of what you're looking to see restored, how much of it is really impossible to restore in an era when presidents reach the public the way they do, now including through Twitter. Yeah, so I, I do spend quite a bit of time talking about Franklin Roosevelt and his use of radio, 
and how Roosevelt is able to fulfill that Wilsonian vision of the president forming a personal bond with the public. Right. And Roosevelt does that through his fireside chats. John F. Kennedy does it through his mastery of television. Right. You know, he allegedly wins the debates against Richard Nixon in part because he looked good. The folks who watched those debates on television gave the edge to Kennedy. Those who listened to it on radio gave the edge to Nixon. But those super, somewhat superficial qualities, I would argue, that come through on TV contributed to this erosion of presidential dignity. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Adam, social media and Trump, President Trump's mastery of Twitter. So technological changes have swept this process along. I would still argue that if you were to get a president who understands the arguments of the framers vis-a-vis -vis the presidency and who acts in a more restrained, a more moderate manner, you can still have these communication devices that are amazing, but act in a dignified manner. There's no reason to be tweeting 8, 10, 12, 20 times a day. Yeah, you're in, in that respect, Lincoln really is the key man here, right? Because, as you say, he both understood and appreciated and, and held fast to the original vision of our Constitution and the Hamiltonian vision of the presidency, but he understood that he needed to speak and present himself in ways that would win votes and not sort of repel votes. So he had to have both the principles but also the prudence to achieve all of that. Right. And I should add, Lincoln understood the power of silence. Yeah. He did not always speak out. In fact, when he was frequently asked to speak out, he would refuse. And he would frequently want to sit down and write instead of just trying to fire up a crowd. So this notion of silence, presidential restraint, you know, holding back on the rhetorical assaults, Lincoln is a perfect example of somebody who did just that. And if there's anybody who had a reason to engage in personal attacks, yeah. whether it's against his Confederate opponents or Democrats in the North who are accusing him of being a butcher, it's Abraham Lincoln, and he did not fall into that trap. Yeah. So if you were to, I mean, Tal, earlier you asked, are we talking about the soul of the presidency or the soul of executive branch? I, I for a moment thought you might go even one step broader and say, is this the soul, are we talking about the soul of government or ultimately the soul of the American people? And I guess my last question for you is, having studied this, not just in this book, but in everything, everything else, and also was watching the modern political scene, is the greater cause for this the men who occupied the office? Or is the greater cause of this loss changes in the American people who elected those men? Unfortunately, I think it's more the latter. I mean, it's obviously a little bit of both, but I do think the American public likes certain aspects of this populist, somewhat demagogic presidency that predates Donald Trump. Right. And that's why I think civics education is so important. But we fall for the, every four years, we fall for the person frequently who makes the most promises who's going to build a wall and have the Mexicans pay for it, who, are, who his election will guarantee that the oceans begin to cool, you name it, we fall for it. And then you get into this endless cycle of raised expectations, followed by dashed hopes, followed by increasing public cynicism. Yeah. So the American people, there's a lot for us to do here as well. Yeah, but fortunately, as you said, the story is not just one of continual loss. There are moments where the tide has turned. That's right. And while one has no clue of what the next election or elections to come will bring in terms of presidential style, there's no reason to think that the American public won't itself call for a different style of the presidency uh, in the future. Thanks for that upbeat and optimist <laughs> point, Adam. Well, the best I'd, I'd say, of course, the best thing that people could do to help bring that change around would be to 
to read this book, <laughs> read it closely and take it seriously. It's a wonderful book. And so thank you both for writing this book and thank you most of all for joining us to discuss it. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Tal, very much. And thank you all for listening. Please join us again next time for the next episode of Unprecedential. Okay, I think we are ready. Three, two, one. This is Unprecedential. I'm Adam White, a resident scholar at AEI, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Tal Fort. Hi, Adam. Hey, hold on. Let me do this one more time. I'll, in- I'll try not to interrupt you. That's okay. I started to do something I don't want to I was do. just getting enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, I was enthusiastic. I want to give me one more try here. So whenever you're ready, we're going to cut this part out. Okay, I'm ready. Three, two, one. This is Unprecedential. A podcast on American Constitution. Let me try one more time. Three, two, one. This is unprecedented. Okay, one more time. This is unprecedented.